I'm Maria Prisima. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, as we've noted over the past few weeks, right now we're having an absolutely epic disaster, a Henry VIII moment in the Catholic Church. And as we've also noted, in order to really appreciate the situation, and each one of us does need to appreciate this, and they need to understand it, each one of us, in order to make sense of what's going on right now between the Pope and the four cardinals, in order to really appreciate what's going on and why it matters, it really matters, we needed to get some perspective. And so we started by reviewing some fundamental points of the unchanging and unchangeable Catholic faith. First, we reviewed some of the fundamental teachings regarding marriage. Then we reviewed some of the basic teachings regarding the sacrament of penance. Then we reviewed some of the basic teaching regarding the reception of Holy Communion. After that, we took a closer look at some of the basic teachings regarding the Magisterium. Remember, the Magisterium is the teaching authority of the Church. It's composed of the popes and the bishops in union with them, and it functions to transmit, to safeguard, and to clarify the deposit of faith, all the saving truths that Christ gave us. To transmit, clarify, and, uh, and, and, and safeguard that down to the end of time. Okay, then the last time we looked at a few of Pope Francis's statements regarding marriage, and at the pastoral application of Amoris Laetitiae in a number of dioceses in which the Pope has, to varying degrees, shown his approval. And we saw that in each instance, active adulterers are to be given Holy Communion. So it's truly a Henry VIII moment in the Church. The great Kazakhstan bishop, Athanasius Schneider, sums up the situation, quote, Admitting the divorce to remarried to Holy Communion without first demanding of them to live in continence and not to violate their sacramental bonds of marriage, not demanding of them to repent and to make a very serious intention to not sin in the future, and so dispensing them from this, we're at the same time destroying Desecrating three sacraments which Christ gave us. The sacrament of penance, the sacrament of Eucharist, and the sacrament of marriage. Close quote, Bishop Athanasius Schneider. Now we finally got the background for the current situation, so today we're going to talk about the dubia. As usual, the quotes will be edited and cut and pasted. There's too many sources to cite each one of them in detail in the sermon. It's also important to note that today we're not going to cover every detail, every possible nuance. There's a lot more that could be said, but we're simply going to give enough here so that everyone has enough information to grasp the situation at hand. There's a lot more that could be said. But it's a sermon, so we'll do our best to give you the basics. It's definitely a very challenging topic. I'll do my best to give you all as balanced an overview as we can in the time that we have. Question. First off, what are we referring to when we use the word dubia? Answer. In this context, we're referring to five short questions submitted to the Pope, which each call for either a yes or a no answer. Question. Okay, so what's the point? Why ask the Pope these yes or no questions. 
answer because these questions all have to do with getting an authentic clarification of the meaning of certain points written about in chapter 8 of Amoris Laetitiae. Question, who submitted these dubia, these questions, to the Pope? Answer, four cardinals, Cardinal Brandmuller, Cardinal Burke, Cardinal Kafara, and Cardinal Meisner. Cardinal Burke is the only one of these men who is not retired. Question, is there any particular reason why cardinals would have submitted these questions? Answer, yes, they themselves pointed out that as cardinals, they quote, are entrusted with the task of helping the Pope to care for the universal church, close quote. Question, why did the cardinals submit these questions? Answer, the cardinals themselves explained their reasons. Their letter was summarized by LifeSite News. I quote, The letter tells the Pope of the uncertainty, confusion, and disorientation among many of the faithful stemming from Amoris Laetitiae. The Cardinals explain that they are compelled in conscience by their pastoral responsibility to call on Pope Francis with profound respect to give answer to the questions posed, reminding them that as Pope he is called by the Risen One to confirm his brothers in the faith, to resolve uncertainties and bring clarity. Close quotes. Questions. What sort of questions did the cardinals ask in these dubia? Answer. Since the complete list is readily available online, we won't get into every detail. For today, for the sake of the sermon, we'll just consider two of the questions. They've been slightly edited, but we'll still be able to get the gist of them. Okay, so the first question. Following the affirmations found in paragraphs 300 to 305 of Amoris Laetitiae, has it now become possible to grant absolution in the sacrament of penance and thus to admit to Holy Communion a person who, bound by a valid marital bond, lives in a marital way with another person? So what does all that mean? We'll put it in different words so everybody gets the gist of the question being asked. So put into other words, is it true that someone who is validly married but has abandoned his spouse and is currently living in sin with someone else, is it true that paragraphs 300 to 305 of Amoris Laetitiae now allow that person to be absolved in confession and thereby admitted to Holy Communion, even though he continues to shack up with someone to whom he is not married? Is that true? Yes or no? Well, you all know the answer here. Everyone knows the answer. Everyone, even the bishops of Malta, the bishops of the Buenos Aires, uh, region of Argentina, and the bishop of Rome. What's the, the answer? Is it true that someone who is validly married but has abandoned his spouse and is currently living in sin with someone else can now be absolved in confession and thereby admitted to Holy Communion, even though he continues to shack up with someone to whom he's not married? Is that true? No. No, no, a thousand times, no. It doesn't matter what Amoris Laetitiae, or the bishops of Malta, or the bishops of Buenos Aires, region of Argentina, or the bishop of Rome, or any other cardinal, bishop, priest, theologian, you name it. It doesn't matter what any or all of them, the whole world say, the answer is no. No, 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 no. 
No. Let's consider one more, the second question. After the publication of Amoris Laetitiae, does one still need to regard as valid the teaching of St. John Paul II's encyclical Veritatis Splendor, number 79, based on sacred scripture and on the tradition of the church, on the existence of moral, absolute moral norms that prohibit intrinsically evil acts and that are binding without exceptions? Okay, so what does that question mean? Once again, we'll put it in different words so everyone gets the gist of it. Put into other words, is it true, as taught by sacred scripture and sacred tradition, that intrinsically evil acts, now intrinsically evil acts are things like blasphemy, uh, San Francisco behavior, adultery, contraception, they are by definition, definition always and everywhere wrong. There are never any circumstances where they can be done morally, okay? So the question is this, is it true? It's taught by sacred scripture and sacred tradition that intrinsically evil acts are always and everywhere prohibited without any exceptions. Is that true? Yes or no? Well, you all know the answer to that one, too. And everyone else knows that answer. We include the bishops of Malta, the bishops of the Buenos Aires region of Argentina, and the bishop of Rome. What's the answer? Is it true, as taught by sacred scripture and sacred tradition, that intrinsically evil acts, like blasphemy, like adultery, are always and everywhere wrong, and there are never any circumstances which they can be done morally? In other words, is it true that intrinsically evil acts are intrinsically evil? In other words, that they're always permitted everywhere and everywhere. Is that a yes or no? Of course it's yes. Of course intrinsically evil acts are intrinsically evil, and they're always and everywhere prohibited, with no exceptions. And it doesn't matter what Morris Letizia or the bishops of Malta, or the bishops of the Buenos Aires region of Argentina, or the bishop of Rome, or any other cardinal, bishop, priest, or theologian in the whole world says. The answer is yes. Intrinsically evil acts are intrinsically evil and are always and everywhere prohibited, period. Close the book. Okay, so we've looked at two of the questions. The rest are all in a similar vein. Everyone has the basic idea here. These are simple yes or no questions asking in so many words whether or not Morris Letizia has changed specific teachings. Each of these questions pertains to teachings that are already found in scripture and tradition, teachings which have been infallibly taught by the ordinary magisterium, which, as we remember, pertains to those truths which have been taught always and everywhere by all. These are very, very serious questions. They're literally salvation issue type questions. Each one of them is literally concerned with salvation issues, and they're all yes, or no. And every one of you here, just as soon as you know what the question is, already knows the answer to each one of these questions. Question, when was the Pope presented with these five dubia? Answer, on the Feast of St. Januarius, September 19th, 2016, almost 160 days ago. Question, what sort of response to these yes or no questions did the Pope give to the Cardinals? 
answer. He refused to answer. Question. How did the cardinals respond to the Pope's refusal to answer? Answer. They waited almost two months and then released a copy of the letter to the Pope as well as a copy of the five dubia along with an explanation of their actions. The explanation is summarized by LifeSite News. Quote, In a note explaining to the faithful their release of the letter, the cardinals revealed the letter had its origin in deep pastoral concern about the grave disorientation and great confusion of many faithful regarding extremely important matters for the life of the Church. As cardinals, they wrote, they are entrusted with the task of helping the Pope to care for the universal Church. The four cardinals interpreted the Pope's decision not to respond as an invitation to continue the reflection and the discussion calmly and with respect, thus chose to inform the entire people of God about our initiative, offering all of the documentation. Close quote. Question. Okay, so in September, these cardinals presented the Pope with five dubia, with five yes or no questions pertaining to statements in Amoris Letizia, asking him, with regard to the confusion and chaos, to, quote, confirm his brothers in the faith, to resolve the uncertainties and bring clarity, close quote. And the Pope refused to answer. After waiting some two months, the cardinals then released their letter in the dubia. And the Pope still hasn't answered. And meanwhile, in various dioceses throughout the world, unrepentant adulterers are being invited to receive communion. So things are a gigantic mess. What happens next? <clears throat> Answer. One of the four cardinals, Cardinal Brandmuller, said the cardinals expect a response to the dubia as the lack of a response would be seen by many within the church as a rejection of the clear and articulate adherence to a clearly defined doctrine. So the cardinals expect a response, and if they don't get one, Cardinal Burke has spoken of a formal correction. A quote from an interview. What happens if the Pope does not respond to your act of justice and charity and fails to give the clarification of the church's teaching that you hope to achieve? Cardinal Burke. Then we would have to address that situation. There is in the tradition of the church the practice of correction of the Roman pontiff. It is something that is clearly quite rare. But if there is no response to these questions, then I would say it would be a question of taking a formal act of correction of a serious error. Close quote. End quote. You have spoken about a potential upcoming formal correction of Pope Francis. Should he continue to refuse to answer the dubia expressed by you and other cardinals with the vocal support of numerous theologians and tens of thousands of faithful? Can you describe that for us? Cardinal Burke. Well, the dubia have to have a response because they have to do with the very foundations of the moral life and of the church's constant teaching with regard to good and evil, with regard to various sacred realities like marriage and Holy Communion and so forth. What format it would take is very simple. Namely, it would be direct, even as a dubia. Only in this case, there would no longer be raising questions, 
but confronting the confusing statements in Morris Letizia with what has been the church's constant teaching and practice, and thereby correcting Amoris Letizia. It's an old institute in the church, the correction of the Pope. This has not happened in recent centuries, but there are examples, and it's carried out with absolute respect for the office of the successor of St. Peter. In fact, the correction of the Pope is actually a way of safeguarding that office and its exercise. Question. Why is this formal correction important? Answer. Before we answer that, we have to start with a very, very important principle. And that is no one can judge the Pope. Question, what does that mean to say that no one can judge the Pope? Answer, I quote Canon 1404 from the Code of Canon Law. The first C is judged by no one. From a commentary. It is a fundamental principle based upon divine law that the first C, the Roman pontiff, cannot be judged by any human power, ecclesiastical or civil. This is a prerogative which, being the supreme judge in the church, even the Pope himself cannot renounce. Close quote, the Canon Law Society of Great Britain in Ireland. In other words, the Pope is judged by no man because he has no earthly superior, and therefore cannot be removed except by God or condemned except by a future Pope. This is really important. The Pope is judged by no man, since he has no earthly superior, and therefore cannot be removed except by God, or condemned except by a future Pope. Each one of us needs to keep this firmly in mind now. The Pope is judged by no man, as he has no earthly superior, cannot be removed except by God, or condemned except by a future Pope. We need to keep that firmly in mind, because for the rest of this sermon, going to be talking about the possibility of a heretical pope. Be very careful not to fall into this trap. Ask Our Lady right now to help you listen carefully to everything, to suspend your judgment during this sermon right now till you get the whole picture, and to listen to the whole thing. It's going to take a while to explain all this. And remember that no one judges the pope except God. And he's right there. He's not here in the pulpit. He's not there in the pews. That's who judges the pope. What we're going to talk about is very dangerous. So please listen carefully to all of it so you all can see how it fits together and don't fall into the trap. The object of this sermon is not to tempt a bunch of you all to fall into hell. In case you've been warned, ask Our Lady for help right now. Now let's start this section by talking about heresy and heretical statements. Question. If someone writes or says something heretical, if they make a heretical statement, does that mean that he's a heretic? Answer. In order to answer that question here, we need to first make sure we know what a heretical statement is. Then we need to know, make sure we know what a heretic is, okay? So first off, what is a heretical statement. A heretical statement is a statement that contradicts a divinely revealed truth. It expresses a false doctrine or a false interpretation of a true doctrine. For example, denying anything in the creed would be a heretical statement. Denying that Our Lady 
is the mother of God would be a heretical statement. Okay, so a heretical statement is a statement that contradicts a divinely revealed truth. Does that mean that someone who makes or believes such statements is a heretic? No, it does not. A person who makes or believes heretical statements could be someone who's poorly catechized, ignorant, or just wrong. But he might very well not be a heretic. Now this is super easy to understand once we know what a heretic is. Okay, so what is a heretic? An actual heretic, also known as a formal heretic, is a baptized person who is guilty of the voluntary and obstinate denial of one or more truths revealed by God and proposed by the church for belief. In other words, he's guilty of formal contempt of the truthfulness and authority of God himself. This is serious, serious business. A formal heretic has that voluntary and obstinate note to him. He's willingly and obstinately sticking to this position. A formal heretic, by committing this horrific mortal sin, instantly loses the supernatural gift of faith and hope and charity. It's all gone. All of it. Every last speck. Gone. Formal heretic has fallen from supernatural heights to absolute depths of sin. St. Thomas points out that the smallest amount of grace in a person is greater than the entire creation. And in the formal heretic, it's all gone. He's thrown away the gift of faith, the faith without which it is impossible to please God. And God's under absolutely no obligation to restore that lost faith. Absolutely no obligation. This man willingly threw it away. Which means, barring an absolutely astounding miracle, that this man, this formal heretic, is going to hell forever. So the man who makes or believes statements that contradict a divinely revealed truth, but doesn't realize this truth, was divinely revealed and proposed by the church for belief. That man is just wrong. He doesn't sin against the faith. But the formal heretic is the man, the baptized man, that only may, not only makes or believes statements that contradict the divinely revealed truth, but he also actually realizes what he's doing. He actually realizes that the church proposes his truth as being divinely revealed, and that he deliberately, willfully, and obstinately continues to stick to his errors. And barring an absolutely astonishing miracle, he's damned himself. Question. Now what does all this have to do with the dubia? Answer. We've seen the questions are very, very serious. Let's take a closer look at what we mean by very, very serious. Cardinal Burke has explained that, quote, we're not asking the questions as a merely formal exercise. We're not asking questions about positive ecclesiastical law, that is, laws that are made by the church herself. These are questions that have to do with the natural moral law and the fundamental teaching of the gospel. Close quote. These are questions that have to do with the natural moral law 
the fundamental teaching of the gospel. One professor wisely points out the implications here, quote, Pope Francis' adherence to the positions mentioned in the dubia is not claimed to be formally heretical, but is taken to be simply erroneous, that is, to be made in ignorance of the fact the rejections of divinely revealed truth. The reason for taking this stand is presumably that any Catholic, and especially the Supreme Pontiff, should be given the benefit of the doubt when they express heretical views and not be accused of heresy until they uphold these views pertinaciously after being informed that these views are heretical. This characterization of the statements of Pope Francis is erroneous does, however, imply their content is actually heretical, which may shock some Catholics. Close quotes, Dr. John Lamont. Okay, so the dubia have to do with erroneous statements made by Pope Francis regarding the natural moral law and the fundamental teaching of the gospel. Statements whose content is actually heretical. Remember, Remember that no one judges the Pope except God. So even though these are heretical views, we have to be very, very careful. Give the Pope every benefit of the doubt and not judge or accuse him of heresy. Okay. Question. Is it possible for a Pope to be a heretic? Yes. It is possible. Just a few quick quotes. In the Decretum of Gratian, now this was a collection of canon laws put together in the 1100s. It was used as parts of the church's law books right up to 100 years ago. In the Decretum of Gratian appears the following canon, attributed to St. Boniface the Martyr. Quote, Let no mortal have the presumption to accuse the Pope of fault, for it being incumbent on him to judge all, he should be judged by no one, unless he departs from the faith. Close quote. That bears repeating. Let no mortal have the presumption to accuse the Pope of fault, for it being incumbent upon him to judge all, he should be judged by no one, unless he departs from the faith. A standard theology work comments on this very canon. Quote, the canonists of the 12th and 13th centuries knew and commented on this text of creation, all admitted without difficulty the Pope could fall into heresy as into any other grave fault. Close quote. Question. What would happen in the case of a Pope being a heretic? And since he is the Pope, it cannot be judged by anyone, how could anyone possibly know whether or not the Pope were a heretic? Answer. We'll address the question about how anyone could possibly know whether or not the Pope were a heretic in a minute. First, let's talk about what would happen in the case of a pope being a formal heretic. And again, there are nuances to this, some of which we'll touch on in a minute or two. There's a lot here. We can only do it step by step. So please ask Our Lady to help you listen, to not jump to conclusions, and suspend your judgment for now. From an interview with Cardinal Burke, quote, Cardinal Burke, if a pope would formally profess heresy, he would cease by that act to be the pope. It's automatic. And so that could happen. The interviewer. Just to clarify again, are you saying that Pope Francis is in heresy or is close to it? Now listen to this beautiful answer. Cardinal Burke. 
No, I am not saying that Pope Francis is in heresy. I have never said that. Neither have it stated that he's close to being in heresy. Close quote. Question. Cardinal Burke said that if a pope would formally profess heresy, he would, by that very act, automatically cease to be the pope. Since no one can judge the pope, how would anyone be able to tell if he formally professed heresy? How would we know if that happened? Answer. Dr. John Lamont. Quote, Various explanations have been proposed of how a pope can be removed from office if he commits the canonical crime of heresy. The explanations seek to explain how the pope can lose office without being judged by any of his inferiors in the church on earth. The simplest and possibly the best explanation that has been offered is the pope, by pertinaciously maintaining heresy, effectively removes himself from office. Close quote. Okay, so the simplest and perhaps best explanation that's been offered is the Pope, by pertinaciously maintaining heresy, effectively removes himself, effectively abdicates. How does that work? And again, how do we know? Dr. Edward Peters, he's a prominent canon lawyer, has recently written, quote, The canonical tradition recognizes that a given Pope could fall into personal heresy, that he might even promote such heresy publicly. The 2001 Canon Law Society of America New Commentary states, quote, Should indeed the Pope fall into heresy, it is understood that he would lose his office. To fall from Peter's faith is to fall from his chair. Turning to the crucial question as to who would determine whether a given Pope has fallen to heresy, one may turn to canonical tradition for insight. A 1928 popular Canon Law Commentary states, quote, Though heresy, through heresy notoriously and openly expressed, the Roman pontiff, should he fall into such, is by that very fact, and before any declaratory sentence of the church, deprived of his power of jurisdiction. Now concerning this matter, there's the fifth view of St. Robert Bellarmine, which is rightly defended as being more proved and more common. For he who is no longer a member of the body of the church, that is of the church of his, as a visible body, cannot be the head of the universal church. But a pope who falls into public heresy would, by that fact, cease to be a member of the church. Therefore, he would also, upon that fact, cease to be the head of the church. Meanwhile, a declaratory criminal sentence, although it is merely declaratory, brings it about not that a pope is judged to be heretic, but rather that he has been shown to have been found heretical. Close quotes. In other words, a declaration that a pope or a formal heretic would not be a judgment of the Pope, since that not possible. It would be a declaration of a fact. The fact that the Pope, by his own actions, had separated himself from the Catholic Church and in so doing lost his office. Okay, great. So now we can see that by pertinaciously maintaining heresy, a Pope would effectively remove himself from office. And that a declaration that this had happened would not be a judgment of the Pope, since that's not possible. It would be a declaration of a fact. The fact that the Pope, by his own actions, had separated himself from the Catholic Church and so doing abdicated, had lost his office. But we're still left with some very, very important questions. How does that work? And who would make that declaration? And upon what would it be based since no one can judge the Pope? Everybody, I hope, sees the problem here. It's really important. And when we're talking about the possibility of the heretical pope, we don't want to fall into heresism ourselves. This is dangerous stuff. Let's talk, turn to the commentary of an eminent Italian theologian of the 18th century, Father Pietro Ballerini. 
and we'll just do this in sections here. Quote, is it not true that confronted with such a danger for the faith as this of a pope, who even only privately defended heresy, that any subjects can by fraternal correction warn their superior, resist him to his face, refute him, and in necessary summon him and press him to repent? The cardinals, who are his counselors, can do this, or the Roman clergy, or the Roman Senate, if being met, they judge this opportune. Close quote. Okay, so we've seen that if a pope pertinaciously maintains heresy, he by that very fact remove himself from office. We've seen that a declaration this happened would not be a judgment of the pope since it's not possible. It would be a declaration of a fact. The fact that the pope, by his own actions, had separated himself from the Catholic Church and in so doing had lost his office. But we wanted to know who might make that, that declaration. And Father Ballerini is going to explain that this declaration could be made by the cardinals or the Roman clergy or the Roman Senate. Next, he explains upon what this declaration would be based, since no one can judge the Pope. It's a long quote, so first we'll read through it all, and then we'll sum it up, in other words, to make sure everybody gets the grasp, because this is really important. Quote, For any person, even a private person, the words of St. Paul to Titus hold, which are found in his epistle to Titus, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. St. Paul, avoid the heretic after a first and second correction, knowing that such a man is perverted in sins, since he is condemned by his own judgment. Close quote. That bears repeating. Scripture commands that we must avoid the heretic after a first and second correction, knowing that such a man is perverted in sin since he's condemned by his own judgment. We continue. For the person who admonished once or twice does not repent, but continues pertinacious in an opinion contrary to a manifest or public dogma. Not being able, on account of this public pertinacity, to be excused by any means of heresy properly so called, because that requires pertinacity, this person declares himself openly a heretic. He reveals that by his own will he is turned away from the Catholic faith and the Church in such form that now no declaration of sentence of any kind whatsoever is necessary to cut him off from the body of the Church. Therefore, the Pope, who after such a solemn and public warning by the cardinals, by the Roman clergy, or even by a synod, maintained himself hardened in heresy and openly turned him away, himself away from the Church that Pope would have to be avoided according to the precepts of St. Paul. So that he might not do damage to the, cause damage to the rest, he would have to have his heresy and economy publicly proclaimed so that all might be able to be equally on guard in relation to him. Thus the sentence which he pronounced against himself would be made known to all the Church, making clear that by his own will he had turned away and separated himself from the body of the Church, and then in a certain way he had abdicated the pontificate which no one holds or can hold if he does not belong to the church. One then sees that in the case of heresy, to which the pontiff adhered privately, there would be an immediate and efficacious remedy for whatever would be done in order to calm the reason before the declaration of his heresy would constitute an obligation of charity, not of jurisdiction. Close quote. So there's a lot there. Don't worry uh, if you got it all, because now we're going to sum it up, in other words but it was important to read from the actual theologian. Let's sum that up. It appears from everything we've heard that if a pope were publicly proclaimed statements 
that were in and of themselves heretical, that would not mean that he was a heretic. We've already seen that. But the charity owed to him by all Catholics would call for a correction. If someone's driving off a cliff, we can't just stand there and laugh at them. We have to do what we can. And obviously there are people that are in a better position, a much better position to address this issue than others. The cardinals have a special obligation here as his counselors to offer such a charitable correction. In their case, it's actually at the level of a duty. We've seen his own clergy, the clergy of Rome, a Roman citizen might also be obliged in a particular way to offer him this charitable correction. Obviously, the scriptures are clear that the corrections must first be done privately. If that correction were refused, then the situation would call for a formal correction. If that correction should be rejected, then another should be offered. And then, heaven forbid, if that should be rejected, scripture states plainly that we have to, quote, avoid the heretic after a first and second correction, knowing that such a man is perverted in sin, since he is condemned by his own judgment. That's scripture. In other words, those true corrections, formal corrections, would have established publicly the obstinacy of the person being corrected, in this case, the Pope. They would have publicly established his obstinate denial of one or more of the truths revealed by God and proposed by the Church for belief. In so doing, he would have openly and publicly declared himself to be a formal heretic. And thus, he would have openly and publicly declared that he was no longer the Pope. Any declaration made at this point would serve the purpose of informing the church at large of his heresy and subsequent fall, of his own abdication of his office. This is serious, serious business. Dr. Lamont, quote, The act of fraternal correction to which prelates are bound in the face of Pope Francis's heretical statements is not only an act of charity, it also constitutes the warning that is necessary for, before a person can be judged guilty of the canonical crime of heresy. The publication of the dubia is not such an act of warning. But the formal act of correction that Cardinal Burke envisages would be such an act. If such a warning were repeated twice, and Pope Francis refused to heed both of these warnings, he would become canonically guilty of heresy. This is serious. Some might argue that the dubia and other criticisms of moral Letizia that have been made already suffice as warnings to Pope Francis, and hence that he can now be judged to be guilty of the canonical crime of heresy. But for the very serious purpose of judging a pope to be a heretic, they do not suffice. The evidence needed for a juridical judgment of such gravity has to take a form that is entirely clear and beyond dispute. A formal warning from a number of the members of the Colleges of Cardinals that is then disregarded by the Pope would constitute such evidence. This is serious. It is to be hoped that the correction of Pope Francis does not have to proceed this far, and that he will either reject the heresies he has announced or resign his office. Removing him from office against his will would require the election of a new pope. It would probably leave the church with Francis as an anti-pope contesting the authority of the new pope. If Francis refuses either to, to renounce his heresy or his office, however, the situation will just have to be faced. Close quote. John Lamont. 
It's a serious, serious business. We continue with excerpts from two interviews of Cardinal Burke. The first interview. You said you were willing to issue a formal correction if necessary. Does that still stand? Cardinal Burke. Of course it does. That's the standard instrument in the church for addressing such a situation. Second interview. Some people are saying the Pope could separate himself from communion with the church. Can the Pope legitimately be declared in schism or heresy? Cardinal Burke. If the Pope would formally profess heresy, he would cease by that act to be the Pope. It's automatic. And so that could happen. The interviewer. Back to this question about the Pope committing heresy. What happens then if the Pope commits heresy and is no longer Pope? Is there a new conclave? Who's in charge of the church? Or do you just not want to even go there to start figuring that stuff out? Cardinal Burke. There is already in place the discipline to be followed when the Pope ceases from his office, even as happened when Pope Benedict XVI abdicated his office. The Church continued to be governed in the interim between the effective date of his abdication and the inauguration of the papal ministry of Pope Francis. The interviewer, who is competent to declare him to be in heresy? Cardinal Burke. It would have to be members of the College of Cardinals. The interviewer, just to clarify again, are you saying that Pope Francis is in heresy or close to it? Cardinal Burke, no. I'm not saying that Pope Francis is in heresy. I have never said that. Neither have I stated that he's close to being in heresy. The interviewer, doesn't the Holy Spirit protect us from such a danger? Cardinal Burke, the Holy Spirit inhabits the church. The Holy Spirit is always watching, inspiring, and strengthening the church. But members of the church, and in a preeminent way, the hierarchy, must cooperate with the promptings of the Holy Spirit. It is one thing for the Holy Spirit to be present with us, but it is another thing for us to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. Close quotes. This is serious, serious business. We have a lot to pray for. We need to pray and sacrifice for the Pope and the Cardinals. Lent starts this Wednesday. Commit yourself to some sort of daily sacrifice and prayer for the Pope and the Cardinals. And be very, very careful not to go into schism yourself by anger towards the Pope or whatever the case may be. Preserve your union with him until such time, heaven forbid, but preserve your union with him until such time as there have been two formal corrections and declaration from the cardinals. If you go into schism, even in your heart, you can't be saved in that condition. A lot of tradies, a lot of bloggers are going to pass from this life into an eternity into hell unless they preserve that union or repent and return to it. A lot of tragedies. A lot of tragedies. Preserve your union. This is serious, serious business. It is to be hoped that Pope Francis will either reject the heresies he's announced or resign his office. 
Removing him from office against his will would require the election of a new pope, would probably leave the church with Francis as an anti-pope contesting the authority of the new pope. If Francis refuses to renounce either his heresy or his office, however, the situation will just have to be faced. Let's preserve our youth and pray that Pope Francis will either